This week on Millennial, we're talking about the legality of fan works and fandom research, including research around fan fiction. So many people like see it as this shameful thing that they're not allowed to talk about. So it's been really exciting to see people's responses to what I do because they feel suddenly seen and like, wait, you're saying that the things that I read are actual works of literature instead of just the trash I'm ashamed of. And later. I'm never one to celebrate death. But there was... <laughs> there are some exceptions There are in some life. exceptions to that. <laughs> what if in the future it is decided that Trump can't run for office again? Imagine the parties that night at the bars around the world. Like, that'd be fun, right? We might have to have a millennial in-person reunion. <laughs> I am going to get fucking blitzed. I am going to be gone. Welcome to Millennial, the home of fake adulting and real talk. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. We are jumping straight into our lead discussion today. We're going to talk about the legality of fan works in light of the runaway hit that was the unofficial Bridgerton musical and Netflix's response to it. To help us discuss this, we're joined by an expert on fandom, Yvonne Gonzalez, a fandom researcher who's been working on her PhD at Berkeley, but recently made a school switch to USC. Welcome to the show, Yvonne. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here and answer any questions you might have. So before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little more about how you got into your area of study and what was it like to study fan fiction as literature? Because that's super cool. Yeah. So it started because I was really bad at school for a very long time. All I ever wanted to do was write fan fiction and read it. And I'm so hyper fixated on things. It was really hard for me to do anything else. And then I ran a fanzine. This was for Voltron way back in that in those days. And it ended up raising $25,000 for charity. We did a whole bunch of great charity works. I was telling a professor about this in a class I was failing. And she said, you know, you can like study that. That's like a thing you can do. You can go and be successful in something you enjoy. So then I did. And I went from a failing student to a four-point student <laughs> because I learned that the things I love are worth talking about. Wow. That is very cool. And to answer those very big question that you asked. It's been so exciting to start to study fan fiction as something worth studying because whenever I tell anyone, especially younger people, that I study fan fiction, they'll go, oh, I love fan fiction. You know what that is? And they're always so excited about it. And it's shocking to me that so many people like see it as this shameful thing that they're not allowed to talk about. So it's been really exciting to see people's responses to what I do because they feel suddenly seen and like, wait, you're saying that the things that I read are actual works of literature instead of just the trash I'm ashamed of. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think we all feel that here because we all grew up obsessed with Harry Potter and we all were, well, a couple of us were working on a Harry Potter fan site and it wasn't cool to be working on a Harry Potter fan site back then. Actually, Laura, uh, she used to moderate Harry Potter fan fiction on MuggleNet. How does this feel to you, Laura? It makes me feel seen. And validated? Are you? Yeah, and, and validated. And I mean, I've never had somebody say to me before, fan fiction is literature. Fan fiction is worth something. I've always just gotten the perception from people around fan fiction just being maybe a dirty little secret that somebody has, whether they like to read it or write it, but not something that you would advertise, for example. 
Yeah, and that's exactly why I wanted to do this because I feel like it's gone from something to be ashamed of to something that I am proud of. Like my grandmother knows about the BTS fan fiction I write. It's that's exciting awesome. <laughs> um, to be able to talk about these things. Not that they, you know, necessarily understand it, but they know that people care about the things that I do, which is really great to see for something that feels like it's niche, feels weird and subterfuge, but not anymore. So speaking of fan fiction, you recently wrapped up teaching a class on fan fiction at UC Berkeley, which is how we found your TikTok. What was it like to come at something most fans consider a hobby from an academic perspective? So I guess kind of build on what you were just talking about here. I mean, every once in a while, I think we hear a story like we see like Taylor Swift class being taught at this university. It's like, oh my gosh, it's mind blowing. And I'm always so jealous because I want to take all the classes on fandom studies, but I can't. It's really sad. (laughs) Well, luckily, there is a robust academic world of fan studies already. So it's not that I was like working from the ground. It was there, the groundwork was there. I could just assign these articles that people have been working on for, you know, 30 years now on fandom, 30, 40 years. So it wasn't that I was inventing the wheel or anything like that. But what was exciting about it was my students. I was teaching this class alone um, as an undergrad. Like I had 25 students, 25 spots in the class, and I had 90 people apply for them. And all of their applications said, oh, I write fan fiction. I'm really involved in it. It's so exciting to be seen like this. And I think that's uh, the thing that was the biggest takeaway that so many people wanted to be involved in understanding themselves. And the discussions were always so robust because these, you know, like 18 year olds would raise their hand and be like, I've been reading fan fiction since I was nine years old. And you could really dig into the personal experiences of a lot of people and figure out how impactful it is. The number of students I had who told me they could discover that they were queer through fan fiction was astronomical. So it was really exciting Yes, to be able to teach these um, academic concepts about fan fiction interactions with race and power and legality and um, what literature is, all those things super interesting. But what I'm interested in is how all of that has an impact on people, specifically young people who are the ones who are discovering fan fiction. Totally. That's amazing. I'm sure Laura would have tried to sign up for that class if she could. Oh, 100%. (laughs) Are you kidding? I wish my college had offered that. You would have been like, I've been waiting for this day my whole life. I've been working towards this moment. Can I declare my major? (laughs) Can I invent my own major, please? What a dream. I know. (laughs) Well, the reason we wanted to have Yvonne on this week is as a result of this lawsuit that some of you might have heard about uh, against the unofficial Bridgerton musical. This was brought upon by Netflix. And obviously, you know, it's a legal story. It's an entertainment news business story but it's also a story that's deeply rooted in fandom and fan works and so we figured we might as well get an expert on to kind of weigh in on this because the three of us can only do so much so for the uninitiated the unofficial Bridget and musical is a project that began over on tiktok between songwriting partners abigail barlow and emily bear and after the musical picked up steam barlow and bear went on to record 
record a concept album, which then went on to pick up the Grammy Award this year for Best Musical Album, which is no easy feat. I mean, they were up against some heavy hitters. So if you hadn't heard about the Bridget, the unofficial Bridgerton musical before this, you definitely probably heard about it after they won the Grammy because this is kind of like a Cinderella story in the making and just kind of one of those feel-good stories for anybody that is involved in fandom because it's it's a fan work that's getting recognized and praised on the main stage, which is all, always really validating for anybody that's ever kind of been involved in online communities. Things get a little bit messy following this big Grammy win when Barlow and Bear announced that they would be performing their musical at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. And at the same time, they also announced that another show was also going to happen at a later date over in London at the Royal Albert Hall. The Kennedy Center event ended up selling out with tickets going for up to $149. There was also the option for VIP packages, and this was not a ragtag production. They had the National Orchestra playing backup. They had brought in Broadway stars to sing different parts and do performances of all of these songs. And after this performance happened, it sold out. Netflix ended up suing Barlow and Bear for infringement. And um, something important to keep in mind here is that the Kennedy Center performance was for profit. So that's where things get a little bit sticky. And up until, you know, this point, nothing had really been for profit. And that is what really changes things here. This is also what differentiates the unofficial Bridgerton musical from the Ratatouille musical, which also went viral. They also put on a performance, but this was with Disney's blessing and all of the profits were going to benefit the Actors Fund. And this was also done at a time when, you know, all of act the actors on Broadway way out of work. So, you know, it was just kind of a win-win for everybody involved. And nobody that made music for Ratatouille was actually benefiting financially from it. So currently, Netflix owns the exclusive rights to create Bridgerton songs, musicals, or any other derivative works based on Bridgerton. And since the lawsuit made headlines, both Shonda Rhimes, whose Shondaland produces the Netflix series, and the original book author, Julia Quinn, have spoken out about the situation. Both of them are also stressing the issue here is that Barlow and Bear are benefiting financially from using intellectual property stories and characters that they do not own. And what was also revealed is that Netflix offered the opportunity for them to purchase a license to perform the material, and they refused. So that's where we are right now. But the reason that the story really kind of gained steam in fandom circles is that um, one of the lines in the lawsuit reads, Barlow and Bear's conduct began on social media, but stretches fan fiction well past its breaking point. Its blatant infringement of intellectual property rights, the copyright and trademark laws do not allow Barlow and Bear to appropriate others' creative work and goodwill to benefit themselves. And I feel like the term fan fiction being used in the context of this lawsuit is really kind of raising a lot of red flags for people that have been around in fandom for a really long time. And so I kind of wanted to start there and ask Yvonne if you could tell us a little bit about the history of fandom's legal interactions with IP holders, because this is not the first time that this has happened, but it might be the first time that people are hearing about something like this happening. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Phantom has a really long history interacting with the IP holders. What we think of as one of the earliest media fandoms um, that looks like it does now with fan fiction and fan art and specific communities and conventions and um, sub-communities within that fandom was Star Trek. Um, so the early Star Trek came 
out in uh, 1967, I believe, was when it first started airing at like conventions. And almost immediately, fans started making fanzines, so magazines of their fan works. And the first one that came out was called Spockanalia, and it somehow made, made it into the hands of Gene Roddenberry. And he sent a letter in for the second issue, like, this is great. This is all essential reading for the Star Trek writer's room. It very much became what IP holders want. Engaged fans are people who give them money. Um, the thing is, with zines like that, it was a ragtag production. You said in your intro, this wasn't a ragtag production. All of that early fandom, even when they were you know, selling zines, not necessarily for a profit, but for making their money back, I guess, they were all very ragtag. If you look at these early zines, they're just like pieces of paper stapled together. It gets messy then when it becomes monetized. Fan fiction, fandom is a gift economy. Um, I give you this thing. I write you some fan fiction. You tell me nice things and give stuff back. It's it's all about gifts. It's not about necessarily um, this capitalist exchange. There are some instances uh, you guys experiencing Harry Potter fandom, I'm sure have seen some of them, where authors, specifically Anne Rice, an interview with a vampire, she sent cease and desist letters to people. But there's no case law behind that. So as long as fans aren't profiting directly off of the IP, generally it's left alone. So what's different here is the monetization. The fact that they are not a ragtag production. Emily Bear, I believe, is like an actual movie uh, composer. She's a professional in this. They were no longer just fans doing something that they love and adding value back to the original IP. They are creating a different one without the rights. Yeah. And all the while, winning a Grammy, performing at the Kennedy Center, the Royal Albert Hall, like these are, this is like the dream for any musician or artist <laughs> and the fan fiction has managed to do it. So I could totally understand why Netflix wanted to draw a line because they can't let anybody try to do this. I do wonder like where exactly the line was drawn for them. When did they finally put their foot down? They may have waited too long, maybe, to put their foot down. From what I understand, I can give a little context to that. Uh, they had been in contact. And so there are some people online that are kind of coming at Netflix saying that it's it's like the big bad company coming after the the little man, so to speak. But the reality of the situation is, is that obviously that stems from the fact that Netflix and also Shonda Rhimes are very supportive of this. Like one of you said, this is an IP holder's dream, you know, to have like organic fan generated content is a really good indicator of passion and viewership. And so, so I, th I think I've said this before on this show, sometimes if I'm curious about whether a show is doing well, I will take a little peek over on Archive of Our Own and see like how good the fan fiction is coming along, like just kind of reading the number of um, and like looking at those stats just to see how much work is being created uh, around a certain thing. And I feel like it's always really interesting to see the the distinction between that and and like these numbers that Netflix for example tends to claim which we don't have any access to that data so but anyway so so they were like clearly supportive um and i guess they had been in contact and they were very clear that as long as Barlow and Bear were not making money then everything would be fine so the Kennedy Center was really the straw that broke the camel's back there and they had announced it Early enough that Netflix said, if you guys go through with this, then, you know, we're going to have an issue. Especially given that Netflix, again, to your point earlier, Pam, offered them 
the opportunity to purchase rights to it so they could do this right exactly who knows how expensive those were i guess we don't know that right it's probably very expensive it wasn't a 500 dollars bill but it'll it might come out in the lawsuit like in the actual court case it might come out which would be interesting well yvonne you mentioned gene roddenberry you mentioned um and rice i'm wondering how often it happens that ip and copyright owners get involved with fan works that are created It's very uncommon, I would say, because like I said, these fan works add value to the IP. Like I watched Bridgerton because I saw a TikTok of the Bridgerton musical. That's a very direct correlation. I would not have watched Bridgerton if I did not see the I Burn song on TikTok. So I think it only really comes up when it's a question of, for at least Anne Ray, she was like, no, they're not gay. How dare you? When, if you've read Interview with a Vampire, like, it's pretty gay. Yeah. But that's the only that's the only instance I can think of where like actual letters were sent that said, um, please stop doing this. And there again, there's no case law specifically about not-for-profit fan fiction. There's just the cease and desist letters, which are just warnings. There's no case law to back those up. So it's it's incredibly uncommon. And I think really what happened in this case is that. The Kennedy Center does no lo- no longer adds value to Bridgerton. It is just for them. You know, the album is something on Spotify people can listen to and be like, oh my God, the Bridgerton album won a Grammy? That's crazy. I should go watch that show. No one who's going to the Kennedy Center show is adding value to the original Got product. It. So I think that's really what it came down to. Um, no longer profiting off of this other uh, fan work. When we were discussing having you on over email, you had mentioned that there's a correlation between all of this and how fans see themselves legally. So can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much what we've been saying already. People understand themselves as existing in a like a legal gray area that no one will touch as long as they don't make direct money off of the product, off of the IP. I would say also that this is something that's kind of changed by age. Um, I know that this is uh, mostly a millennial podcast, but I am Gen Z just at the line. And I know that the older generation of fans tends to be a little bit more afraid than my generation just because um, they've experienced this. Like uh, when Anne Rice was sending the cease and desist letters, they might have been active in fandom, whereas I have never seen it in any of my um, fanish activities. And I've been doing this for like, you know, 20 years now, even though that's not very long for me. That's most of my life. It's very generational how we see themselves. I make money off of my fan fiction, whatever. BTS isn't going to come for me. But I've definitely heard older fans say, you should be afraid. You know, they might send you a scary letter. I know people who have gotten scary letters. I don't know anyone who's gotten a scary letter. Back in my day, we were getting sued all the time. <laughs> be careful over there. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, I really appreciate you bringing up the distinction between fans and different generations because I have seen in researching this story a lot of tweets from like fandom olds, if you will. Uh, you know, writing about how this could set a dangerous precedent. So do you feel like that's a little conflated or do you feel as though Gen Z having no fear is maybe taking stuff a little too lightly? I know you all are like the fearless generation. You go in guns blazing. But like, is there a reason to to be worried and to, quote unquote, watch the space with regards to what ends up transpiring as far as this lawsuit goes and how that could affect fandom works going forward? 
I think that as long as fans continue the gift economy and don't become professional musicians booking the Kennedy Hall, we're probably fine. Um, and on that note, there are like teams of lawyers hired by AO3 to defend fan works. Um, they haven't used it very often, but that resource is there. There's like a fan work defense fund. So I don't think that this is something that the little guy has to be afraid of. I do think that people who are monetizing their fan works in mass in the same way that Bridgerton the Musical did might be a little bit worried, but this precedent is not new. Whenever any big company decides to make a product with an IP that they don't own, they get sued. That's what's happening here. They made a product, they're making money off of it. The little guy that's making, you know, a couple bucks on like coffee or Patreon, probably not worrying uh, about this. Yeah, let's talk about that. And we can actually throw in our own uh, what we're doing in this question. So you said that you are making money off of fan fiction. How do you do that? I don't think you've said that yet. Yeah. Um, so this is my side account, Old Mythos 2. It's no one knows they're related, um, <laughs> where uh, I write all my fan fiction and uh, I have a Patreon through that that people support. And something I'm very specific about in my own work and getting support is that no matter what I create, none of it will be fully exclusive ever. So it still retains a gift feel because I will post it on AO3. People get early access, of course, um, if they pay for it, but it's phrased more like they're giving me a gift. I'm giving them a little thank you, but everyone is going to have access to these things. It's still a gift economy. Okay, so this is what we need to tell ourselves with MuggleCast, because MuggleCast, Harry Potter podcast that we still do, also has a Patreon. And we're always wondering, the little devil's on my shoulder saying, hey, one day Warner Brothers is going to come knocking <laughs> and you're gonna, they're going to make us take this down. But to your point... We're using the Patreon to fund the production of the show. We need to make money to be able to spend time to create the show, a show that is released to the public. And we do also give people these gifts that you're describing, you know, the early access or the ad free. Um, we do some bonus MuggleCast installments, but we're not. That's just like a little gift. It's not the main show. So thank you for explaining all that. Now I can sleep better. I don't know if that's a legal defense, so don't take my word for it. But. Oh, no, it's fine. It's fine. I'm, I'm a risk taker. That's enough for me. What you just said is enough for me. I wanted to ask a, a tiny little like sidebar follow-up question because I, I often now on TikTok, I, I guess I'm, I'm just like down the, the fanfic rabbit hole on TikTok and it's a thriving community, but I feel like there is a boom in um, fan fiction binding that has been happening. And obviously some people do this by hand, which probably does not really correlate to any sort of legal ramifications. But I've also seen people use stuff like the Barnes and Noble self-publish feature or a website called Lulu to bind and print. Um, stories that they love or their own stories they can put on their bookshelves and stuff like that. Um, do, are you able to speak to whether that crosses a line or not? Because I feel like there's some debate there. So historically, fandom has pretty much always been in print. It has been physical. So if we look at the first media fandom fanzines, there were fanzines before that for like science fiction authors, but fandom as we understand it now, um, that is like a 50, 60, 70 year tradition of people printing their fan fiction and selling it basically for as much um, as the materials cost. That is a long tradition. And um, you also see fanzines 
booming now. I told you at the beginning of this, the, the reason I got into fandom more seriously is because I ran a fanzine that raised a lot of money for charity, sold like 2000 copies. Um, I think I mailed it to 90 countries, something like that. It was incredibly successful and a lot of money changed hands. Um, but that's something that fans have been doing forever. So I don't think that the TikTok trend of binding fan fiction changes anything. That's what people have been doing. I think the difference is now that they're pulling it from the internet. I would worry more about the writers of those fan fictions, uh, what they might think of people creating a physical product of their works, unless the people binding them are the writers. But I don't think it changes anything. Well, thinking of something that could maybe change our interpretations of um, this very kind of nuanced matter we're discussing, the lawsuit also points to the fact that the composers of this show lifted lines from Bridgerton to use in their songs. Is copy and pasting from the original source kind of a big no-no in the world of fan fiction? Or to what extent is it acceptable, if at all? I feel like this is a hard question to answer because it's not, there's no hard line. Um, something that you see in fan fiction all the time is like, you know, if there's an iconic line from the show that the shippers latch onto and like, look at, they're in love, don't you see? Um, you'll see that in <laughs> fan fiction all the time. <laughs> yep. And I think it's the same case with Bridgerton. The lines that they pulled were, you know, iconic lines from the show. Where it's like, ah, do you see? That's the moment. So I don't think it's crossing any new lines. Um, I will say while you were talking, I was thinking about um, this article that was published in like 2002, 2003. That's one of the earliest academic articles about legality in fan fiction. And its argument was basically that all fan works are protected under parody laws, which I don't think is true. And like I said, it's a very old article, but it is interesting to think of like, when is it parody and when is it just ripping off the original thing? I don't know where the line is. It's a fine line. I don't even know if lawyers know where the line is. No, I think we could probably have an entire episode of the show going in circles debating that point. <laughs> Laura, when you were working on MuggleNet fanfiction, were there hard lines that you guys drew there? I know there's probably lines around like explicit content, but what about just like the legality of it all? Yeah, I mean, there were definitely community standards around the kind of content that MuggleNet was going to allow to be on their platform. But when it came to, you know, direct references to the original books, I would say it's kind of hazy because one, it never happened really, where I feel like it's one of those things where if you got something that was explicitly a copy-paste hack job, that is recognizable very quickly as soon as you start reading it. But it never happened because people are creative and they love Harry Potter. So they're trying to use this as an outlet to enjoy Harry Potter more. So how would copy and pasting large swaths of the original story help them accomplish that? I think, you know, kind of like Yvonne was saying, if there was a particularly iconic line, like think about the always, for example, from book seven, somebody might use something like that to, you know, create poignancy in their story or have some kind of deep impact in the storytelling. But it was never anything that struck me as plagiarism 
far more accusations between fans to be like, oh, you stole my story. Yeah. <laughs> I see very little that like you stole from the original work because we're all doing that. We're all right. stealing from the original work. That's how fan fiction works. That's how any art works. Any art is derivative. And I have a whole rant about like how copyright shouldn't be a thing, but that is, I don't know if that's the print for this podcast, but <laughs> we're all stealing all the time. And I don't think that references to any one work is something to be ashamed of. It's, it's what we do. Right. Yeah. There are no new ideas. Exactly. Well, we've talked a lot about uh, fan works that are created using the written word, uh, but I'm curious if you are able to weigh in on what happens with fans that make more traditional art. So like, for example, Etsy is full of art and clothing and home decor that's obviously inspired by very popular IP. Um, How is it that they're kind of able to get away with that more blatantly than, you know, say the fan fiction writer that's quaking in the corner thinking they might get a cease and desist letter every any minute now? I mean, I know for a fact that like Redbubble has gotten cease and desist letters. It's, It's much more of a thing on those marketplaces to get some legal interaction of some sort. But I, I was just really struck by the line you said when you were introducing the musical saying this wasn't a ragtag production. That's that's really the line. If you go to um, Artist Sally at any convention, you'll see all the people with booths set up selling things for IPs that they do not own. None of those artists own those IPs, but it's art that they drew themselves and they put in tons of labor to make, you know, 50 charms that they're selling for $10 each or whatever it is. That is not a company. It's not worth Disney coming down on them most of the time and suing them. I do know that there are some cases of Disney suing for art and stuff like that, but it really, it depends on volume. Like fans are not doing the volume that these companies care about. Um, And again, it's adding generally back to the value of the original work. Because if you see, you know, that Loki charm on someone's bag and you're like, oh, that's so cool. What is that from? Oh, it's from a TV show. You should watch Loki on Disney Plus. That's adding value back in. Yeah. Free advertising. Do you think that corporations consider to an extent, this is actually kind of a good look for us to foster these fan communities and let them create fan fiction, create podcasts, and, and you know, they got to fund their, their work. They got to fund their time. We understand that. So we're going to let it go simply because it's just a good look for us. I would say so. Um, when I was doing that, that zine that made all the money, I was thinking about like, what would happen if I did get a cease and desist? Well, DreamWorks, the owner of Voltron, never would, because what are they going to do? Come out against a bunch of teenagers for raising money for charity? Like, that just looks really, really bad. With um, the Barlow and Bear case, I feel like Netflix is coming out looking better um, because they offered licensing. Um, They allowed Barlow and Bear to do all of the stuff before it, release the album, win the Grammy, do charity shows, all those things. Netflix is looking better because of this, whereas Barlow and Bear aren't necessarily. It's like, I saw this TikTok today that was like, who's advising them? This is, they're wrong in all senses of the law. So optically, this is a better move for Netflix now than it would have been when it was just some cool TikTok videos. Well, that's all the questions that we had for you today. So thank you so much for joining us, Ivana. It was so great having you. And thanks for all the wisdom that you shared. Yeah, of course. This was so fun. And if you ever want to know more about the history of fandom, I am ready to share my years of knowledge. Heck yeah. 
Well, speaking of that, let's promote your TikTok again, your old mythos there. Everyone, please follow her because she's making really great videos about her fandom research. They're very interesting. We'll have a link in the show notes, but anywhere else our listeners can find you? I'm Old Mythos everywhere. If you want to read my fan fiction, I'm Old Mythos on AO3, Um, but I'm very findable on the internet. And it was such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so we're going to continue with the fun today. But first, just wanted to plug our Patreon here for Millennial. I wanted to share something we did recently. We had a Bay Hangout actually on Monday night. This is a hour-long hangout we do every month on Zoom with our Bay patrons. And these are really cool. If you're a Bay patron or you've been thinking about upgrading, definitely come to one of these because we're just chilling, talking about what's going on in our own lives and what's going on in our listeners' lives. And uh, we were actually talking last night as the news about Trump broke. We'll get to that in a couple of minutes. So we were all kind of digesting that and and uh, doing Trump impressions. And uh, we also spoke about the time that the Dave Matthews Band's tour bus literally dumped shit on people in Chicago. So we run the gamut and we learn new things. I had never heard that story before. One of our listeners is even thinking of launching a TikTok dedicated to coverage of it. I'm crossing my fingers there, honestly, because it was, yeah. I'm a intrigued. (laughs) It was Camille who was uh, thinking of launching that TikTok, and we are encouraging her to do that. But anyway, check out the Patreon. There's lots of other benefits too. patreon.com slash millennial. We couldn't do this without you. So thank you so much for your support of the show. And nobody can sue us here, right? Nobody owns millennial. We can we can do whatever the hell we want. That's right. Yes. We got a hashtag in front of it. That's what makes it different. Right. So I mentioned we're going to continue with the fun, Laura. We have a clusterfuck. Yeah. Oh, I get it. Clusterfuck. Yeah. 2022. Good news edition. Yeah. So feels like there hasn't been a lot of great news out of the political realm in like the last several years. But these last couple of weeks have uh, unearthed some really interesting, intriguing, and oftentimes funny outcomes for, you know, some of the talking heads on the right, be they radio personalities or former presidents. So getting into it, we can talk about Alex Jones and his no good, very bad trial. Um, Of course, he has been on trial for perpetrating the rumor or the conspiracy theory that the Sandy Hook massacre was uh, fake news and that the kids were fake and the parents were crisis actors. So some of these families are understandably suing him. And, you know, we can talk about the fact that he was ordered to pay around $50 million for compensatory and punitive damages. But I think... I mean, that that is very satisfying. But there was an even more satisfying made-for-TV moment that came out of this trial. Many people probably heard about this, but I want to play the clip because the lawyer who's presenting this revelation to him is just like, he needs to be hired for Law & Order SVU. It's so good. So you did get my text messages. And it said you did. Nice trick. <laughs> yes, Mr. Jones. Oh. Indeed. You didn't give this text message to me. You don't don't know where this came from. Do you know where I got this? No. Mr. Jones, did you know that 12 days ago, 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone 
with every text message you've sent for the past two years, and when informed, did not take any steps to identify it as privileged or protected in any way. And as of two days ago, it fell free and clear into my possession. And that is how I know you lied to me when you said you didn't have text messages about Sandy Hook. Did you know that? I See, I told you the truth. This is your Perry Mason moment. I gave them my phone. and then, Mr. Jones, you need to answer the question. No, I, Did you I, know I, this happened? That's the judge who's ready to absolutely murder Alex Jones. <laughs> She hates him so much. But anyway, this was an epic moment. This uh, lawyer surprised Alex with the revelation that he had all of his text messages, all of them. And now these, I think, are going to be handed over to the January 6th committee. This trial isn't even related to that. So Alex Jones might be in for an additional world of shit. Yeah, there was also some inappropriate child content that was referenced in the messages. So that's being looked into. Obviously, Alex Jones was at the January 6th insurrection. He never went into the Capitol, I think, that we know of. But he was definitely out front egging people on. And, you know, there are text messages and emails in here that indicate that he was in communication with the White House prior to these events transpiring. So it'll be interesting to see season two of the January 6th uh, committee kickoff in September, hopefully leading with these Alex Jones texts. How is Jones's lawyer, who represented him in this trial, ever going to have a job again after accidentally sending all the text messages to the prosecution's lawyer? What? I... I like he can't have a job ever again, right? He needs to sail off into the sunset. I also just love how he's just sitting there. Yeah, he's like leaning back, <laughs> hand on face, like kind of stroking his chin. Hmm, yeah, so that did happen, didn't it? Yeah, I did do that. It's funny, Mark almost thinks that it was on purpose. He was like, somebody in that law office was like, okay, fuck this guy. Yep. And just sent it all over. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sick of this, man. <laughs> this is your Perry Mason moment. And that lawyer who who dropped this bombshell, like just the way he presented that, if you heard a, this clip and didn't know it was from this trial, you would have thought it was from a television show. I know. A dramatization of a court trial. Yeah, the inflection was incredible. Because he knew it was a Perry Mason moment as well. I don't even know who Perry Mason is. I just know that that's, that's, that's a Perry Mason moment. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like a boomer reference. I started typing in Perry Mason and the autocomplete was moment. Perry Mason moment said to have occurred whenever information is unexpectedly and often dramatically introduced into the record that changes the. Yeah. So it's like the boomer version of like dropping the bomb, dropping the mic. <laughs> this is your yeah, mic drop mic moment. Drop. <laughs> <laughs> it's your uh, October surprise, oh, as it's man. called, during the election cycle. <laughs> right. All right, Laura, that was delicious. Give us more of this meal. What else are we feasting on? <laughs> so Kansans uh, rejected a ballot measure during their primary, which would have removed abortive health care protections from their state constitution. This was huge. Nearly a million people turned out to vote in this early August primary, which are kind of unprecedented numbers just based on if you look at historical data around primaries around that time of year. Um, and Kansas also is a red state. It skews extremely conservative. So the fact that so many people turned out to vote against this just shows, yet again, 
the vast majority of Americans are pro-choice, at least to some extent that they would say the government doesn't get to tell us what to do with our bodies. Yeah, I saw this really great. I wish I had bookmarked it, but maybe I can look for it. I saw this really great breakdown on Twitter. It was just the thread of the different political ads that ran leading up to this vote. And so many of them were kind of bringing home that point that you just said, which is that too much government control over what you choose to do with your life is bad all around. And it's interesting to me, because I think the assumption is that any state that's in the Midwest or going towards the South is going to automatically be more conservative. But this is proof that they got to weigh the pros and cons there, because even if they don't believe in abortion, they also are more likely not to want the government to interfere too much with their lives. And this is like a direct interference. So finally found something that I guess we can all unite on, which is better than nothing, I guess. Does this make you feel better about the midterms, Laura, seeing people turn out in Kansas this way? Yeah, I just hope the momentum keeps going. It's certainly a good sign for midterms. Another thing that I'll add is that the White House is really hoping to seize on to the momentum that Kansas created. Biden signed a second executive order protecting abortion access the day after this vote in Kansas. Um, So we can definitely see we've got the majority of the population on our side. It's just a matter of if they will turn out to vote and if Republicans have gerrymandered our districts too badly for it to matter. Fair enough. What else? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I'm never one to celebrate death, but there was... (laughs) There are some exceptions in life. There are some exceptions to that. (laughs) A prominent leader of Al-Qaeda was killed. Amin al-Zawari. Yeah. You were delighted by this. (laughs) So he was killed by special forces under the Biden administration. So it's being credited as a Biden win. Fox News was even describing it as Biden's bin Laden moment. This was Osama bin Laden's number two. So it was a very big deal. No civilian casualties. This guy walked out onto his balcony and they got him. Something killed me, though, from The Onion, which is a parody news site. They posted a story the other day. I was literally in tears over the story and i was for several days thereafter the onion headline said rest in peace to the onions longtime fashion contributor and architect of 9-11 ivan al-zawari i was dying at the thought that the onion would hire him as their fashion contributor after being the architect of 9-11 and then the image is like a nice poster or a tribute to him and there's like a close-up and he's smiling i'm just i was in tears over this i love the onions so much <laughs> yeah yeah i chuckle at so many of their headlines um when i see, see them pop up in my feed but yeah just like and you know it's just so deadpan of course and they're like proud that they hired him too <laughs> that's another layer of this it's amazing oh, oh <laughs> man i love the dark humor Well, let's also talk about a story that had, I think, most of the nation laughing, except for, you know, one orange Julius in South Florida. (laughs) Trump's beautiful home, Mar-a-Lago, was raided by the FBI the day before we recorded this show. Like Andrew mentioned earlier on in the episode, we were actually doing one of our Bay Hangouts over on Patreon, and 
this news was breaking shortly before we signed on for that. So first of all, that's just a reason why it's super fun to join those Bay Hangouts, because you kind of get a chance to hear us talk about the news before we talk about it on the show. So you get our unfiltered reactions. (laughs) And I was getting upset because I wanted to talk about this, but everybody else wanted to talk about Dave Matthews's tour bus shitting yeah. into the Chicago River. So, but okay, I'll talk about it more now. There you so, go. So <laughs> the search is reportedly related to classified documents he had illegally brought to Mar-a-Lago. You're not supposed to do that as president. You need to give hand all the documents over to the National Archives. It remains unclear what specific materials agents might have been seeking on Monday or why the Justice Department and the FBI decided to go ahead with the search now, because I was also reading that he did eventually turn the documents over. But do they think there's additional copies of the documents still at Mar-a-Lago? Do they think he didn't turn over everything? CNN reported they re- uh, they seized 15 boxes from Mar-a-Lago. So apparently they took a lot. That's a lot of stuff. And this is a big deal. The right, oh, watching them spin this has been delicious. This is the dessert of today's clusterfuck yeah 2022 meal. They're saying verbatim, if it can happen to Trump, it can happen to you. So look out, everyday American who wasn't president and didn't take 15 boxes of documents from the White House on your way out the door. And then people on the left have very rightly been saying it's good that it can happen to anybody because nobody is above the law just like you were saying about hillary when the whole email quote-unquote scandal was going down so they are in major hypocrite mode right now the right is oh yeah and it is fun unsurprising but it is like you said really funny to see them backpedal and try and really explain this away or spin it into something bad and they're talking like merrick garland got bored and they were like send the crew down to mar-a-lago no right or like there's no basis for why anybody would want to raid mar-a-lago also isn't this fbi director wasn't he a trump appointee yes he was (laughs) In 2017. Good for for that person. (laughs) Chris Ray, the FBI would have needed to persuade a judge that it had a probable cause, that a crime had been committed, and that agents might find evidence at Mar-a-Lago. Clearly, they found something. They found 15 boxes of something to get a search warrant. Um, And proceeding with the search on a former president's home, and now this is unprecedented, yes, would also surely have required sign-off from top officials at the Bureau and at the Justice Department. So they very likely did not make this decision easily because they also knew that, you know, there would be this backlash from certain people. So that said, and I've been quoting from uh, the New York Times, the search does not mean prosecutors have determined that Mr. Trump committed a crime. But it's possible. It's very possible. And that's why they were able to get into Mar-a-Lago. Right. Were we expecting this in light of the the insurrection hearings? Because the general consensus at the end of the, I guess, like season one of the January 6th hearings was that Trump had played a role in orchestrating all of this to an extent. So was this something that we were waiting for? It seems like it's still unclear whether or not or when we can expect the Justice Department to weigh in on this. They could be waiting for season two. They want to keep, you know, they well, want to keep people watch this space. on pins and needles. <laughs> yeah. And the s- cliffhanger of the year. And speaking of that, just we've gotten our hopes up so many times that the gauntlet was finally going to come down on Trump. 
and it really has yet to. So please, nobody get their hopes up. This is a fun story. I am enjoying following the developments and watching Trump cry and being like, they even broke into my safe. How could they? But nothing might come of this. So don't get too excited about it. These things can also take a really long time. So even if they do find something criminal, it's not like they're going to find it tomorrow or that it's going to be released anytime soon. It could be years, honestly. Now, I did read that it is illegal for a president to remove documents from the White House. They have to submit them, like I said, to the National Archives. And I was reading that if they do do this, then they aren't able to run for office again. So best case scenario, maybe, is that Trump doesn't get to run for office again, which would be a very good outcome. I think that's where everybody should be setting the bar right now. Expect nothing else. And of course, if if it is determined in court or through a grand jury, I don't know, that Trump can't run again, of course he's going to try to fight that. So this story is just at the beginning. Yep. Agreed. Honestly, I'm at the point where all I want is for him to be barred from ever holding any kind of office again. Yeah. The man should not be able to run for dog catcher. <laughs> like, <laughs> nothing. Yeah, that is like my best case scenario, too, Laura. Would we all like to see him go to jail? Of course. Oh, but yeah. I, even if we just get this. I'll be I'll consider it a win. I'd be happy that oh, we yeah. don't need to, you know, live in fear over him deciding that he's going to run again at some point. I know it's bad so. enough that DeSantis is running like, yeah, we don't need more of this shit. We really the don't. The way that we have to pick between the lesser of two evils, though, you know, it's like I would prefer DeSantis to run over Trump, but we don't want either of them to run. Yeah. That's so ridiculous. What if in the future... It is decided that Trump can't run for office again. Imagine the parties that night at the bars around oh the God. world. Like that'd be fun, right? <laughs> we might have to have a millennial in-person reunion. <laughs> I am gonna get fucking blitzed. I am gonna be gone. That'd be cool as hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, some other, you know, potential good news here, but good news with a pin. Let's put a pin in it. Um, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that Trump needs to hand over his tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee. But the exciting thing about this headline is originally it came out and said Trump needs to hand his tax returns over. Later, separate headlines came out saying that actually he doesn't need to hand them over because Ways and Means can just request them from the IRS directly. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it kind of takes that uh, takes letting Trump be the middleman and drag his feet out of the equation. Um, that said, there really is no telling when this is going to be resolved. And if it's not resolved before the election, before midterms, and if Republicans take the House before, so they'll take the House next January, if they take it before the resolution drops, they're going to drop the re the records request. So it's just another reason why we have to turn out in the midterms. Work like this will very likely not matter if we lose the House and the Senate. Yeah. So clusterfuck yeah with like an asterisk. <laughs> Fucking vote. <laughs> Clusterfuck, yeah, keep fucking. And by fucking, we mean voting. <laughs> yeah, fuck is synonymous with vote. <laughs> <laughs> 
put that pencil through that hole. Okay. Um, this all comes as the Inflation Reduction Act was passed by the Senate. Yeah. It's now going to go to the House and then to Biden. So we'll be able to celebrate once this passes for sure in the days ahead. And I saw some people note that oh, man, this Trump story is taken away from Biden's big win here. Uh, but he can get back in the news by having big a big signing event. And of course, when the House votes it in, it'll be a big deal. He still has to weigh in on student loans because technically those are supposed to go into repayment at the end of the month. But technically, um, loan servicers have to give something like 30 days notice of repayment starting, and that's just not possible at this point. So he's going to have to extend the moratorium again. So we'll see what he does on student loans. In After Dark today at patreon.com slash millennial, we will be talking about what's going on with concert ticket pricing. It's been real hard out there for us Bruce Springsteen fans right now. Some people may have seen the headlines, actually. And Pam went to a music festival, and we will be talking about her experience there as well. But yeah, this uh, concert ticket pricing is really rough right now. So we're going to talk about the whole situation and what's going on in our own experiences with that. So that's at patreon.com slash millennial. And by the way, you can get each week's After Dark content delivered to your favorite podcast app, except for Spotify, just like you do the main millennial episode each week. It's a one-time setup once you pledge on Patreon. So do check that out. It's very easy to get our bonus audio content. Well, it's time for some recommendations. I want to recommend something that really gets me going. Please, I beg everybody listening. Get what you paid for. Whether you go to a restaurant, you're paying for a certain type of service. It grinds my gears when I pay for something, they know what I wanted, and they screwed it up. And in this household, it's happened twice in the past week, and I don't stand for it. I hop straight on Twitter. I hop straight on their website's contact form, and I get complaining. Here's one story for you. So last week, Pat orders uh, Chipotle for both of us. We do the takeout. We do it through the app. So they get a digitized, you know, copy of the order. It should be crystal clear. They completely screw up Pat's order. It's got his sticker on it, on his Chipotle bowl. They completely screw it up. It's the wrong beat. It's the wrong veggies. It's the wrong everything. I'm like, please freaking write to them. He just heard back today they're going to give him a free entree. Good. You got to do that. Don't stand for this shit. But then over the weekend, we decide to go for a hike. And we pop into Subway to bring some Subway sandwiches up to the mountain. So um, we order again through the app because it's just convenient, saves everybody time, blah, blah, blah. We pick them up. It's like 1030 in the morning. Nobody's in there. I order a turkey sandwich and we go up the hill hiking for like an hour, hour and a half. We reach the peak. I sit down. Ah, I'm so hungry. I'm ready for my Subway. My fucking turkey sandwich is missing the damn turkey. Are you kidding me? That's the main ingredient in the sandwich. So what else? What was in there? It it was everything but. Just like veggies? It was the lettuce. It was the spinach. It was the cheese. It was the mayo, (laughs) but not the turkey. I'm like, I cannot stand when that happens. I get like, if it was just the lettuce or the spinach, okay. Yeah. Whatever. It happens. But the main ingredient is your turkey sandwich. Get out of here. And like, I don't think this was a case of the of it being too busy in the store. I get these people, you know, they're probably underpaid, overworked, stressed. I get it. But you have to make good 
on what happened. So I've been DMing with Subway all weekend. Andrew, what do you do this weekend? I've been DMing Subway to try and get something back from them because this isn't right. I took a picture of the sandwich. I sent it to look at this. Look at this meatless sandwich. And uh, well, I've sent like four follow ups at this point and a separate email through the contact form on subway.com. And yeah, I I know that this was like unavoidable because you all were all already so far away. And this has happened to me before with like Starbucks where I'm in a rush. I pick up my drink. I get to where I'm going and I realize shit, they used real milk. And now I can't have this because I'm lactose intolerant. Right. Yeah. But I'm I don't ever say anything because I guess I'm just dumb. Pam, the real reason is because I feel bad back in but there. Listen, <laughs> well, I'm already so far away. But my my point in bringing this up is like, how much of a thing are you going to consume before you complain about it? Because this came up recently when I was out to dinner with a friend and the the wait staff said that they charged them for the full one because they had they had consumed half of the beverage before they complained. Oh, well, like if I was in the subway, I would have immediately noticed and been like, hey, it's missing the turkey. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I'm not saying I would storm in there and yell at them, but give me a credit. Give me a partial refund or something. That's all I'm asking for. Right, right. Exactly. But are you are you eating the whole thing, though? Well, in this case, yeah, I was hungry up on the mountain. Okay. <laughs> and honestly, it was good without the turkey. I might just stop ordering it with a turkey, but I didn't tell them that. <laughs> if Nobody shared this with Subway. But um, yeah, I just it really bothers me when people they they get something that they didn't pay for. The order was incorrect. And then they let it go. Don't let it go. A lot of these businesses have social media presences get on there. They'll give you something good. These social media people actually do a good job with making it right. That's it. I'm done. That was my rage of the week. (laughs) I wish I could say Burger King was the same way because I had a bad experience there a while back where, I mean, literally they forgot half our food and we got a ton of attitude from the person working at the window. So I just DM them being like, hey, literally half our order was missing. It's pouring down rain. We're not going back. Can we just get a credit or something? And they just kind of made me, they wanted me to like prove it to them in some way beyond me telling them what happened. So I just gave up because it wasn't worth it to me at that (laughs) point. (laughs) It's always worth it to me. And Laura, you're more tenacious than I am, Andrew. I once complained to Burger King, too. I'm knocking them all off my list. Like, every one of these people is on my shit list. <laughs> was, was Burger King compliant with, you know, giving They did, you actually. They did. Okay, well, that's yeah. good. You know, this is the problem with the order ahead apps, just really quickly. You order ahead. You pick it up. It's all wrapped. You don't know to your home if the order was right or not. Yeah. And they do, unfortunately, screw it up quite a bit. So... Going forward at Subway, I'm opening that sandwich right there. I'm inspecting. Yeah, you definitely <laughs> should. You know what I will say is that Target's drive up is pretty good about this. At least mine is. I, I only had one time where an item was missing and they just refunded me right away. And unfortunately, it was when I was sick with COVID and I really needed the thing. But, you know, it was nice that they didn't ask me to, you know, fill out a detailed form or like send a picture of everything else that came. So I appreciated the ease of of access for that, for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll let you all know what happens. I'm waiting for my Subway gift card that was promised to me three days ago. 
And then they ghosted me. I got ghosted by Subway Sandwiches. I think that's what's happening here. <laughs> They're probably hoping you'll forget about it. Well, we'll <sighs> keep an eye out for this on next week's episode. Next time. <laughs> what a teaser. Yeah. Next time on Andrew versus Subway. <laughs> They ghosted the wrong person. Yep. I don't forget. <laughs> I'm a podcaster. <laughs> I'm going to tell people about this on my show. Be careful what you do next. Well, um, my recommendation is not nearly as colorful or exciting as Andrew's is, but I wanted to recommend, I think Andrew's recommended these before, Knock Knock Pads. These nice little to-do lists that you can get off Amazon. They have a bunch of different designs and formats that are just anything from like a basic task list to a weekly calendar, even a daily calendar. Mine is broken down by tasks, errands, correspondence, and notes. And I've just felt lately like I need to buy myself some tools to help myself stay better organized. Got these and um, they've actually been super helpful. And it also helps me keep track of how much I'm actually getting done in the day. I think sometimes when you're not keeping a list or you're not keeping track, you can forget how much you're actually doing. And the fact that I'm just writing little tasks down as they come onto my plate or as I finish them helps me get through the day and see, holy cow, I filled out this whole list on this paper. That's everything I did today. So it makes me feel really accomplished. Um, I'm a big fan. And you get a dopamine hit from yeah. scratching it off once it's done. Those digital task lists, they don't do anything for you. Yeah. I've also been in moments where I do something, but I hadn't written it down. I'll write it down after I've done it and then scratch it out. Same. It just feels good. It feels like bonus points. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted to recommend Pod Meets World. I don't usually get swept up and rewatch podcasts that are like officially done rewatch podcasts, but there's one uh, show that I love more than Gilmore Girls for nostalgic purposes. It's probably Boy Meets World. So obviously this one piqued my interest. It's Danielle Fischel, Wilfredell, and Ryder Strong who play uh, Topanga, Eric, and Sean on Boy Meets World, and they're just getting together and rewatching the show. And I guess two of them haven't watched it at all, so it's really fun. And they have a really good group of guest stars ranging from people that were actually involved to like little known guest stars so I just listened to an episode that featured Mikey York who is also in the Sandlot so it was like a double dose of nostalgia to hear them talking about like you know his work on the Sandlot and then also uh, his work on Boy Meets World and uh, it's just a really cool way to re-experience the show through the people that were making it. And I think rewatch podcasts like this are especially cool because obviously social media was definitely not what it was back in the 90s. So we don't have a lot of information about what was going on behind the scenes, not like we do with shows that are going on now where most of the people involved are on some sort of social media and giving little sneak peeks. So if you're also a Boy Meets World fan and you're not checking this show out, I would recommend doing it. And I believe they release two episodes a week. So there's lots of content for you to sink your teeth into. Well, a couple of reminders before we wrap up. Make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen if they have a little review system. If you have any feedback, you can write to millennialshow at gmail.com or you can use the contact form or anonymous confessional on millennialshow.com. And also follow us on social media. We are Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then over on TikTok, we are Millennial Pod. 
All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Bye, everybody. Bye.